Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from the book of Esther how Esther could not endure to see evil come to her Jewish people and how Mordecai helped to find the loophole to save them. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org and on iTunes. Now, verse 3. So now it seems, again, like a great on that day. But what we read in verse 3 is, And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his face, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised. Notice that twice, that same word is used. Device that he had devised against the Jews. It's been a great on that day. It's really been tremendous. I mean, uh, Esther, she finally reveals what she's really bothered her for so many years, that she wanted to tell the king that she was Jewish and be accepted. She finally does it. She's accepted. Haman's plan is disclosed. Haman is destroyed. Esther's given Haman's house. Esther and Mordecai are long last reunited. Mordecai has given the ring. Mordecai has put over Haman's house. It's a great day. It's a wonderful day for Esther to celebrate. Great day. But what do we see? She's not celebrating. It says she's crying. She's crying her heart out. Notice the words of verse 3. Esther spake yet again before the king. With all the good that's happened in that day, you think that Esther could be happy, but she's, she's, very, she's not satisfied. She's not satisfied at all. And she's, again, applying to the king, making application to the king for permission to speak. And so notice how it says in verse 3 that Esther fell down at his feet. So here's Esther again. She's in deep humility, another picture of, of this great woman in deep humility. Again, she's pushing the envelope. She's pushing again for another hearing with the king. And the king, you know, in essence, she's asking the king to again hold out the royal scepter to her, the golden scepter. And even though the king has not held out the golden scepter yet, she's crying her heart out. She's speaking with her tears. She's so brokenhearted. She's just crying from the depth of her soul. And it says, notice how it says in verse 3 that she besought him with tears to put away the mischief, word number one important, of Haman the Agagite and his device, word number two it's important, that he had devised, repeated, against the Jews. So we can see here that Esther, she can't control herself. She's sobbing uncontrollably and through her tears she's begging the king, put away the two things, the mischief and the device. And both those words that she used there, the mischief and the device, are very important words to understand what's going on here. Because Haman had, of course, the mischief was the evil, the wickedness that he had against the Jewish people. But he put together a very, very good device from his point of view. Very effective. Because Haman had put together such a device, strategy, plan, plot, Such a device that even he knew that even if Haman was killed, it would still go forward. So Esther is speaking of the ra'ah, the mischief, the evilness, which he has put together in his intention to destroy the Jewish people. And then separately, Esther carves out of her speech and speaks of this device, of this strategy, of this plan that's already put in place that she knew was an arrangement, it was a fait accompli, it was done, it was an arrangement, it was like releasing the bomb, it was in the air. And the arrangement was to destroy the Jews, and it was all tied up in this royal seal of the law, or the the letters, 
of the king, which cannot be changed. You know, once that missile's launched, there's no calling it back. So at this point, Esther and Mordecai, they have no idea how to call the missile back, how, how they're going to deal with this problem of the arrangements already in motion to kill the Jews by the irrevocable law of the king. And Haman knew this, and he was probably taking comfort in this as they were putting the rope around his neck. That at least he says, well, my brilliant plan's going to be carried out even if I am swinging in the wind, which he did. Now, verse 4, it says here, verse 4, so now the emphasis, she's begging and pleading and crying, and now the, the spotlight's on the king. It's up to the king. He has to make the next move, which he does, verse 4. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, and Esther arose and stood before the king. So here, when the king held out his golden scepter, it showed that the king was willing to comply. He, by holding out that scepter, the king was saying, I'm willing, and Esther, you should get up off the floor, and you should stand, and you should speak. All right. So now, in verse 5, she speaks, and she reveals that although Haman has been destroyed, and Mordecai has been advanced, her heart is broken, absolutely shattered for her Jewish people. And she throws her life before the king. And she asks the king, she says, in essence, she's saying to the king, look at me and give me my request. Give, the king should give her her request. As she says in verse 5, if it please the king and if I offend favor in his sight and the thing seem right before the king and I be pleasing in his eyes. Oh, the power of a persuasive wife. So she's asking the king to look and see if she's found favor in his sight. She asks the king to consider, even apart from that, is it right for Haman's plan to go forward. And she asked the king to consider if she's been pleasing in his eyes. So again, she uses these same words that she's harping on these words, devise, device, devise, that she sobbed about in verse 3. And she's a big, big problem about Haman has devised this plan that's irrevocable law. And Esther doesn't know how to overcome it. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to pull the missile back. It's an irrevocable law. So she pleads with the words, let it be written to reverse the letters. But it can't be written to reverse the letters. And the king knows that, and Mordecai knows that, and Esther doesn't care. She's just saying, write it already, but it can't. Then in verse 6, she pours her heart out more. Even though Esther has no clue as to how these irrevocable letters can be reversed, she just bears her heart with this phrase that she says twice, how can I endure to see? For how can I endure to see Verse 6, the evil that should come unto my people. How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? This is why Esther is crying. This is why she won't be solaced. This is why she won't be silenced and she won't be comforted. And she's tormented with this, how can I endure to see the evil? How can I endure to see the destruction? See, that's the two things. That's the mischief, the evil, and the destruction was the device. How can I endure to see this? And she's saying that even though she was safe, which she was in the palace, which, as we said, literally means the citadel, the fortress, even though she and Mordecai were safe, Esther could not endure to see the destruction of her people. That's the true heart of an evangelist. I remember one time seeing a sailor here in the Navy in San Diego, and he was going door to door doing his evangelism, and he wrote on his hands because I saw him reading these things on his hands, the order of scripture references that he needed 
And he was looking at his hand, and he'd get up to the door, and it was, you know, the typical things, you know, get them lost, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and then get them afraid, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, and then, you know, tell them what God did in Romans 5.8, and that Christ died for us, and then ask them for a decision, Romans 10.9, you know, to confess. <laughs> you know, evangelism today has been reduced down to what do I say, what do I do, what is my formula? What are the scriptures? What do I got to do? Just wind me up and point me in the right direction and I'll go do it. But true evangelism doesn't start with what you do. True evangelism starts with how you feel. And before God's evangelist says a word to anyone, he says verse 6 to himself, how can I endure to see the evil that shall come on my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther had said that right after. Esther said that those words right after she was told, Esther, you're safe. Esther, you're accepted, Jewish or no Jewish, you're safe. And you've been given all of Haman's wealth, and from your perspective, you've got nothing to worry about. You are within the palace, the citadel, and yet her heart is still broken for those who were not safe. It wasn't an issue of whether or not she was safe. She was broken for those who were not safe. That's the heart of Paul in Romans 9, 1 through 3, when he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who were the Jewish people. Those words of Paul are expressing the same brokenheartedness for his people that Esther expressed when she said verse 6, of the how can I endure verse there. Same thing, same thing. Now, when did Esther say verse 6? She said it right after she was told that you are safe, that she was safe, she was assured of that, Mordecai was going to be accepted, but her heart was broken. When did Paul say? Romans 9, 1 through 3. Paul said that right after Paul said the last two verses of the previous chapter, Romans 38 and 39, when he said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those verses in Romans 8, 38 and 39, were Paul saying, we are safe. Paul was saying, I am personally safe. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. There's nothing that can block me from going to heaven and to be with God forever. Paul was absolutely safe, and he was, but yet he was a broken-hearted man. He comes off of the safety of Romans 8 into the broken-heartedness of Romans 9. Esther has come off of the safety of verse 1 and into the broken-heartedness of verse 6. And so that's what we see here, and that's the heart of God. And that any person, if a person is going to be an evangelist for God, then verse 6 has got to be the confession of how he feels. Because verse 6 is the heart of God the Savior. And the lost will know, they know, if verse 6 is a reality, or if this is just sharing 
merely uh, showing them how much they know about the scriptures, you know, that it couldn't be put any better than John Maxwell, the former pastor of Skyline Wesleyan, put it when he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This is very well put. And now, verse 7, the king speaks. Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Now notice how it's emphasized that the king spoke to Esther the Jew. No, to Esther the queen. There is a special relationship between Esther and the king. And so she's not Esther the Jewess, she's Esther the queen. But he spoke to Mordecai the Jew. Esther is the queen because in the king's eyes, her position of queen surpasses her alignment with her people, the Jews. And it's so nice to see those words. The king Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew. There they stand together. What a great team they are. Esther the queen and Mordecai the Jew. That's the team that won for the Jewish people. They worked beautifully together. They had their moments, but they locked together and they went forward. Why? Because they had a common goal. You know, the best way, we're a team here at the chapel. And we can have our moments, like they had their moments. But the best way to get a team working together and stop with the disagreements or the fightings or whatever, I'm not saying we're doing that. But anyway, it's to focus on a common goal. And the best remedy for congregations, for churches, where there's a lot of backbiting and arguing and fighting, is to adopt the common goal to see we need to be about rescuing the perishing. So this is a wonderful team of two here, Esther and Mordecai. And they work beautifully together because they had a common goal of rescuing the Jewish people that are about to perish. And now the king's words are one of great encouragement as he says what he has done. He tells them, look, I've given to Esther the house of Haman. This is what the verse is saying. And Haman has been hanged. And then the king explains the reason why Haman was hanged because he says, He laid his hand on the Jews. And with those words, the king was telling them, the king was telling them that he is for the Jews. He's now for the Jews. And he's encouraging them. Think carefully on how to effectively reverse the letters that can't be reversed. How to override the letters, the first ones, that cannot be overwritten. Think carefully. And he doesn't tell them how to do it. It's a very difficult thing, but he tells them that what he has done so far so that they'll just know that they have the challenge, they have the obstacle that hasn't been solved yet, but they know he's for them. And that means a lot. Romans 8.31 means a lot to us. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's a simple verse. It's one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. God be for us. It's just simply stating that God is for us. You know, on a cell phone that I used to use for Europe, you could put a message on it, a little message. And then when you look down on it, you could see the message. And so I chose the message, God be for us. And when I was traveling around Europe alone, visiting customers, trying to get from one appointment to another, from one train station to another, from one language to another, from one train to another, from one jet lag to another, it was a little rough. That's why I put on the phone, God be for us. Because you need it. And there are many times when I needed that encouragement. And many times you need that encouragement. 
You don't know where the next stop is. How are you going to get off the train? Can you get back? Is it going to be a train going the other direction? You don't know all those things. And they didn't know how they're going to solve this reversing the irreversible. But what King told them here is, I am for you. And what we need to know is that God is for us. And then no matter how great the problem is or how complicated the solution has to be, it's just great to be able to look at your phone and see God before us. And it's great to remember that. So verse 7 is the king telling Esther and Ahasuerus, I know you have a difficult problem in effectively reversing the irreversible, but I just want you to know I'm for you. That meant everything to them. Now, verse 8. Now the king, after encouraging them, he says to them, verse 8, Write ye also for the Jews. Remember your goal. You're writing for the Jews. As it liketh you, so think well, in the king's name, seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Well, that's good news and bad news. Good news for the second letter, it can't be reversed, but it's also a reminder, bad news, because the first letter can't be reversed. So the king doesn't tell them how to overcome the problem of neutralizing the letters that can't be neutralized ordered the destruction of the Jews, but the king encourages them to write new laws, and he reminds them to make it good, because the last words of verse 8, the writing which is written in the king's name and seal with the king's ring, may no man reverse. So he's saying to them, keep that in mind. So what the king was saying to them was that an old order cannot be voided, you know, but then with the wink of an eye, right, the king, he he says to them, he guides them, he says, but new orders can make the old orders powerless, so write some good new orders. He didn't tell them what to write. So, <laughs> so verses 9 and 10, they say that the new orders are to go out with all the speed, and they're going to go out no delay. And verse 11 through 13, Mordecai, he's got it. He saw the loophole in the first orders, and he writes, and it gave him just the chance he was needing to write the new orders that will effectively make the first set of orders uh, powerless. And here's how it worked. The first set of orders, as Mordecai noticed, did not involve the authorities. The first set of orders did not say, the authorities shall go out and kill the Jews and and destroy them and so forth. Why? Well, because Haman, he had a lot of friends that were anti-Semites, and he didn't want to take the, and they weren't authorities, and he wanted to take the joy away from them, so he left it open for them to go out, kill the Jews, and take the spoil. See? But that was the loophole that was needed because the authorities were not involved in the first set. It just simply said that the enemies of the Jews could come and destroy them and seize their property. And it says that the authorities should not stop the enemies of the Jews. So that order could stand. And now new orders were put in place that read just like the old orders. And they again did not involve the authorities. And these new orders, again, were from the king, and they were granted. And the Jews now, it says in these new orders, on the very same day that they were to be destroyed, the Jews were allowed to stand for their lives and use the same language as the first orders, which were they could destroy, slay, cause to perish, with all the power of the people in the province that would assault them. See, that's the new orders that he injected in there, that would assault them both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of the prey. So the new orders were working together with the old orders, and the way it was coming across was that the old orders were to identify who were the anti-Semites. It was to identify who would assault the Jews, 
who were the enemies of the Jews. This is the way it's coming across. And then, after these new orders identified who the enemies of the Jews are, the old orders, after the old orders identified who the uh, enemies of the Jews are, then the new order said that the Jews could go kill them and that the, um, the authorities could not uh, I- intervene on that. That was beautiful because it didn't neutralize or nullify or reverse as Esther said, we have to reverse, we have to reverse. It didn't reverse them. It let them stand in place. But when the new orders came together, this, the, the new order said, now I'll tell you why the old orders were put in place. The old orders were put in place to identify the enemies of the Jews so that the new orders could go and, and get rid of them. Anyway, so the new orders, this was a great thing. Was, of course, this is of God. This is of God. This is brilliant of what he's come up with here. So in verse 14, the new orders go out fast. Post, they ride on mules and camels and hastened and pressed by the king's commandment, and the decree was given also in Shushan the palace. And notice in verse 14, these new orders seem to have this special commandment from the king, this special hastening, this special pressing along, which the old orders didn't have. So then again, for all these people from Ethiopia to India, you know, all different language and everything, trying to figure out what's going on here, they get the message that, oh, we see why the old orders were and the new orders, okay, this is what really the intention is to destroy the enemies of the Jew. So everyone who sees the new orders sees this special commandment from the king, and it made it appear. Well, the old orders were just there to identify the people who wanted to destroy the Jews, and, and the new orders would be that they would be destroyed. Well, that's a great time. Anyway, so verse 6, 7, 15. Chris, verse 15 is a time of great happiness. And the clothes of Mordecai reflect this happiness. He is wearing blue and white and a big crown of gold and a fine linen and purple and everybody's happy, and it says, and the Shushan, the palace is happy. And it says there that in verse, say what it says in verse 16, the Jews had light, it says this there, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. It's a picture of great joy, great safety to the Jewish people. It's also a prophecy. It's also a prophecy of what will happen to the Jewish people when they finally are rescued by their king, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he fights for them on the mountains of Israel, as predicted in Zechariah 14. Three through four words says the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. It's the prophecy of Zechariah 13.9 where he says, I will bring the third part through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and try them as gold is tried. Then shall they call on my name. What name would that be? That's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then shall they call on my name and I will hear them and I will say, it's my people. And they shall say that the Lord is my God. That's a day. That's a day of great joy and happiness for the Jewish people as pre-seen here in the book of Esther. A day that the world is waiting for, a day that we're waiting for, when the Jewish people become the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, you're my people. And they say to him, you're my Lord. The Lord is my God. Now, it says in verse 17, such a good thing, that there's a word that's used here. It's only used here in the whole Bible. And I'll tell you what it is. It says... Every province, every city, where the story of the king's commandment is decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. I'll say that was a good day. <laughs> it was a pretty good day. Anyway, and then it says, many of the people of the land became Jews. That's a word that's never used any other place in the Bible. That's the only place it's used where it's this word became Jews. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And now, this has happened in the past. These are proselytes. This has happened in the past. In Exodus 12, 38, when they left Egypt, it says, and a mixed multitude went up also with them. This is a prophecy when the many people become Jews. Don't ask me what it means to become Jews. I don't know. Maybe they start eating corned beef sandwiches. I'm not sure. 
But anyway, they adopt the God of the Jews. That's what it means. It means that they come to worship the God of the Jews and to fall in line with his commandments. Now, this is also a prophecy for the future. In Isaiah 14.1, it says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land, and the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. In Isaiah 44.5, again, the future, it says, One shall say, I am the Lord's, another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. Well, this is a great, great day. This is a great day for the Jewish people. This is a great day for God in rescuing the people. And we've gained a lot by looking at the two heroes here, Mordecai and Esther. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you, Lord, working through the faith of Esther and Mordecai, got the victory over the evil, over the device, over the impossible. Because with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So thank you, Lord, for what we've learned today in our study of of Esther. Thank you, Lord, for making it real to us. And thank you, Lord, for creating in us this desire to want to sit down and meet them and talk with Esther and Mordecai. But help us, Lord, in the time we have left here on earth to be like them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Our resource for this month is How a Jew Learned the Meaning of Isaiah 53 from Tom Cantor. We'll also include his personal testimony. If you'd like these two resources this month, we're offering them for a $10 or more donation. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. At 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org to order it online or donate online. Thanks for listening. Join us next week.